my name is Sharon Milliman. Um, I live in West Virginia. Okay, so my my second NDE happened in 2005 in the summer, and I was sitting on the back steps of my house talking on a cordless phone, and it began to rain, and I heard uh, thunder, and then I heard a loud crack, and a lightning bolt came out of the sky and hit my right arm, and... When it did that, I felt this burning, searing, agonizing pain. And the lightning went through my body and then traveled underneath the house. And it left, uh, and it blew the transformer uh, uh, that was right in front of the house. But um, once it hit me and went through my body, it left black tar marks on the concrete steps. And I had felt that pain, that burning, searing pain. And that only lasted for like a minute. And then I just peeled up out of my body. My spirit just came right up out of my body. And I didn't even know I was dead at that point. And I um, went into my house and I start looking around and I noticed that everything has this burnt gold look to it. And I looked at my curtains that were in my kitchen and they weren't mine. And then I went into my dining room and the furniture wasn't my furniture. It was my house, but nothing in it was mine. And I was getting very confused about what, um, what was going on. And like I said, I didn't know I was dead, so I, I couldn't figure out what, you know, where where people were in the house. Why was this furniture not mine? And then I heard this old time radio, and it was playing. Uh, it sounded like something from back in the twenties or thirties, um, and I couldn't find it. I was looking everywhere for this radio, and I thought, well, we. There's no power. Uh, I, I knew something had happened, but I didn't know I was dead, and I, I, I just couldn't find any this whatever was making that no, that radio sound. And then, just about the time I started to panic, um, there was this huge, loving, formless presence that appeared, and I mean, he was huge, and. He just filled me full of this peace and this love that I've never felt in my entire life. And I wasn't afraid anymore. And it was like he just picked me up and his big arms, you know, and we started moving sideways. Um, I didn't go up and I didn't go down, but I went sideways, got this presence and I went sideways. And we were moving very, very quickly um, through these, what looked like beautiful pink and gold clouds. And when we got to the end of the clouds, there was this, it was the most beautiful garden. Um, and the, the sky was blue and the air was real sweet and the colors were very vibrant. And it, it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. 
and I could hear birds singing and um, the flowers were colors. I don't even have words to tell you what colors they were, but like the pinks were pinker, the reds were redder, um, yellows were brighter yellow, you know, much more so than what you see here. And I still didn't know at that point that I, <laughs> that I was deaf. So I, I, I really didn't know what was going on. I was kind of just going with the flow. And um, two men um, came forward. As we moved a little bit further under the garden, two men came forward and greeted me. And at first I thought they were angels, but then it hit me because they were wearing this um, uh, real expensive, finely woven linen clothing and they were glowing and I thought that they were angels. And then it hit me like, like um, instant divine knowledge. I was like, oh my God, no, those, those were my two brothers who had died when they were babies. And I was only a baby when they died. So I didn't, had never met them, but, but it was like instant knowledge that these were my brothers. And when they smiled, they looked exactly like my dad when my dad was a young man. And they were so beautiful. And there was this, this just amazing, beautiful family reunion. You know, it just, it was so wonderful. And I kept telling them, dad would be so proud of you, you know, because they were so beautiful. And they appeared to be about the age between late 20s and early 30s. Um, so actually, they were the ones that had to tell me I died. And when they told me I died, I was like, okay, I can do this. This is okay. You know, because it was, I wasn't afraid. It was so, I felt so much love and so accepted. And that was the one of the big things that I, I, I couldn't get over. Um, and when they told me that I had died, I looked down the front of me and I could see my hair like coming down the front and I could see my body and I was a better version of me. And I could see my clothes and my feet. I could feel the grass so I could still, I had all of my senses. I still, but everything was very heightened, you know, extremely heightened. I could see like all the way around without turning my head and I could see far distances, great detail. And, um, but I looked down the front of me and, and, and I could feel the grass on my feet and, and this was sweet smell of like freshly cut grass. And, um, so, well, once they told me, I was like, okay, I can handle this. This is all right. And then, so we moved a little bit further into the garden and um, there was a bunch of other people that started to gather around me and they were like from all different time periods. The women were in these beautiful dresses and some of the men were in fancy suits. And then there was other people that were dressed, you know, like we dress today. Um, so, I just knew that they were from different time periods and I knew I knew them, but I didn't know where I knew them from. 
and they all gathered around and not one of them was over like they were between late 20s early 30s so not one of i didn't see any old people i didn't see any sick people i didn't see any people hurting or crying or anything like that everybody was young and glowing uh you know just so beautiful and just it, it was incredible um and they just gathered around me and just loving me and then um it was time for my life review and that's when the big huge loving presence went from um beside me to behind me and my brothers went out on either side of me and um then all these other people they gathered around and it was time for my life review and what i saw was like a, an old-fashioned screen um and i'm watching like a black and white movie and that going really fast like on an old-fashioned movie reel so it's it's going really fast and it was my whole life i saw myself as a little kid and it was just from the moment i was born all the way up until that moment that i died in my backyard and but there was it, it was like over in a blink of an eye just like the snap of a finger and it was done and i thought wow my life must be really boring because <laughs> it's over so quick and i asked my brothers you know like okay something's missing what's missing i this was the something's off here what what is it and they just kind of grinned they didn't they weren't going to tell me anything and i was like really <laughs> you're going to do this now um but they never really answered um but, but what i got out of it was that this huge loving presence was god and god at that time did not take on a form he was just a spirit and he was huge and all he did was love me so completely and all of those people that were around me loved me so completely and accepted me totally and there was no judgment at all and i didn't know that i was supposed to be judging myself and imagine you want to buy a car it could be this car or that car or this car and so they didn't judge me and i didn't judge me and there was no judgment and so that's why it was over so quick and then i heard a male voice say what you put out into the universe will come back to you and i had never heard words like that so i didn't know what that really meant but then as we kept walking um it was like i felt like i was hooked up to a giant ivy bottle of knowledge there was this like divine wisdom and i was being infused with all this knowledge and and part of that was being shown what those words meant and um what i was taught was that you know or what i was shown was this like i call it the boomerang effect 
it's like you throw a boomerang and it gets faster and faster and it comes back at you. Well, that's kind of like what happens with our thoughts and our words and our actions and how we treat people here and what we do um, goes out into the universe, spins, gains momentum and then comes back and like a boomerang and, and will just smack you right in the head. You don't know when it's coming or how it's coming, but it will come. And so that kind of made me realize uh, <laughs> I better be the girl, keep my mouth shut, be nice and loving and compassionate and kind and those kinds of things because that's what I want to come back to me. I don't want that, you know, that other stuff. Um, so we kept walking um, and, and I was getting more knowledge as so we were walking around in the garden um, and I, you know, like who God is, what God is, how the universe was put together. And I was just, I kept saying to God, Dodge, you're so awesome. This is so awesome. You're so cool. And I told him, I said, you're so simple. And us human beings make you so complicated and you're not complicated at all. And I was shocked. You know, I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> because he was so... I mean, he's not what everybody makes him out to be. Um, and so um, as that was going on, I was looking around um, and I heard this music and there was music that was, it was what I call big music, huge, big music, um, many instruments, lots of like orchestras put together drums and pianos and stringed instruments and that kind of stuff. And I noticed that everything had a vibrational sound. The trees had a sound, the rocks had a sound, the water had a sound, um, the grass had a sound. And when you take all of those individual sounds and you put it together, you have the most magnificent choir and orchestra that you've ever heard in your life and everything is singing praises to God and so I was just kind of you know all of this stuff was happening and I'm sure I was only there for a couple minutes but it seemed like I was there for weeks and weeks and weeks because there was no time you know I had there was absolutely no time and um, so after I heard the music, I started to, um, I, I could see like this, what I called the glorious city. And it was off in the distance a bit. And there was a wall, a golden, it was a bright wall that goes around the city. And in the middle of the city is a round building. I mean, there was lots of buildings, but there was a big round building in the center and it had a golden dome on it. And then I saw some buildings on the outskirts of the city. Like I saw a place where babies and children go and they're loved and cared for. And, um, you know, they're running around and playing and having a wonderful time. Um, and they were all different like ages and stages. 
and um, so they have, you know, when babies and children hide, there is a place that they go that they're loved and cared for by their, you know, past loved ones, angels, whatever. Um, I saw another building that had, now all these buildings are made, made of like alabaster, marble. Um, that just beautiful and the architecture is like there's columns and archways and uh, intricate detail carved into the uh, marble and um, there was a I know I saw what I call the hall of knowledge but I don't know if that's what it's called but it was like a library and it had a bazillion books books from top to bottom uh, you know, from ceiling to floor, and it, it was about every subject you could possibly want to know anything about. You can go in there and get one of those books and you get this knowledge. And I saw um, um, another building that uh, had these beautiful healing pools, like swimming pools out in the back behind it. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Um, just absolutely beautiful. The water was like living water. It was just like uh, alive. And it, it was like a spiritual hospital for people who have died like a traumatic death or suicide. And there's mentors and teachers and angels and people that are there to help um, bring these people gently to the awareness of what's happened to them. And and everything in heaven is very gentle it's it, it is very beautiful so it, they're they're loved into wholeness you know and loved into the the understanding of what happened um and then i saw there was this one room that i saw that was absolutely magnificent it was a party room <laughs> and it had a big huge chandelier and it had a guy in the corner playing this giant beautiful gorgeous piano and there was people dancing and uh, laughing and talking and um, there was a pink blush carpet on the floor and these expensive paintings on the walls and on the opposite side of where the piano was, there was a table that had this uh, expensive white linen on the tables, and then there were silver trays, and then um, there were flowers, huge flower arrangements and candelabras, and it was just magnificent. But there was fruits and vegetables and meats and pastries and breads and just every kind of food you could possibly want on these silver trays and um, <laughs> there was a, the women were in these beautiful dresses of, you know, like uh, pink and purple and blue and yellow and red and, and, and the flowers on the table matched their dresses. And then there were men in um, tuxes and fancy suits. And there was a butler and he walked, was walking around and he was holding a silver tray on his hand like this and he was passing around champagne glasses. And that's uh, that's all I saw of that. I don't know what the party was, what they were doing, but it was so 
real and it seemed so magnificent and festive and joyful and um so i saw that um and then so we're sort of in the middle of the garden by this time and i'm just like in shock over all of it it was so gorgeous and um there's a grove of trees over in the corner and by the you know off to the side from the 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 wall or the city there and people have asked me what the trees were and i have no idea what they were but jesus walks out of the grove of trees and he comes up to me and when he does my brothers disappear and i don't know where they went but what he said to me was i love you i'm with you and don't be afraid and that was my first clue that i was going to be sent back but i didn't catch it it went over my head because i was just you know staring at him <laughs> it didn't dawn on me that what he was saying was <laughs> we're going to send you back so he was solid um it at Outback Steakhouse, we're committed to serving our communities by doing what we do best, serving you. It wasn't just an image. Uh, he, he had the long, uh, I don't know, dark colored hair. He had um, a dark olive complexion, kind of looked uh, glowy kind of like everybody else was glowing. So he looked like he had tan maybe on top of the darker skin. He had beautiful brown eyes. And I mean, he was breathtaking, just breathtaking. And um, now I've seen him several times because he visited me several times physically, not in dreams or visions. And this was the only time I saw him in a, in a robe. Um, and he certainly did not look like the, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus that everybody thinks of. But he was absolutely breathtaking. And um, so he leads me over to this uh, wooded glen, and there was light coming through the branches and there was a log laying there um, and a stream. And I sat down on the log. And when I sat down on the log, Jesus walked away. And there was a man sitting on the other end of the log. And um, I knew that that man was God. So that huge, loving, formless presence that God was at the beginning had now taken on a form. And I knew that that form was not, I mean, it was the face he chose for me to see. And it, um, um, he, and he was just, he was beautiful too. He was an older, I would, I want to say an older version of Jesus, but not, you know, maybe an extension. Jesus was an ex younger extension of, I don't know how to put it anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but anyway, he he looked totally different. He had um, um, short black curly hair. 
blue eyes. His skin was not as dark. Um, so he, he did look different. And um, so we're sitting on the, on the log and he turns to me and he says, what would you do if it was just me and you? And I said, what? I did not understand the question. And he said, what would you do if it was just me and you? And I still didn't understand the question. And so he just grinned at me and he just, he said, come with me. So we get up and we go and we move further into the wooded glen and there was a clearing. And at the, in the clearing, as he, he kind of waves his hand and he opens up the sky and I can see um, the vastness of the universe. Um, I could see the spinning planets and sparkling stars and these rainbow colored gases, but there were no buildings and no trees and no people and no cars and nothing. It was just all that stuff and nothing. And I looked at God and I said, if it's all of that and just me and you, you would be sick of me after the first 10 minutes with all of my questions and chatter and you wouldn't like me anymore, so no. And when I said that to him, he threw his head back and he laughed. <laughs> and when he laughed, it made me laugh because, I mean, his laughter is so um, contagious and um, his eyes were sparkling. And it, it was kind of a, a, a cute, funny situation. I, I felt really, oh my gosh, did you just say that? <laughs> and so then we went and we sat back down on the log and he asked me again and he said, what would you do if it was just me and you? No mom and dad, no husband, no children, no friends, nobody, just me and you. And I just kind of looked at him and I was like, I didn't, I really didn't know what to say even then. And so I'm looking at this tree and it kind of, you know, draws my attention away from the question. And all of a sudden I'm starting to think these thoughts and I don't know where they came from, whether they were God that put them in my head. But I said, just out of the blue, and I have no idea why, um, I said, God, your hundredth name in the Quran is God is everywhere, God is nowhere, and God is in me. And he said, yes, that's right. And I never read the Quran, I've never seen the Quran, I don't know anything about it. So I was kind of shocked at myself that <laughs> I would come up with something like that, and that it was right. And then I said, as I'm looking at the train, I see the detail of the bark and the roots beneath the ground pulling the nutrients out of the soil and the nutrients go up into the leaves and the leaves clean the air and we breathe the air and so everything is connected to everything and every single part is very important to everything else and um i'm sure that god put it that in my head too because i was i wasn't one to think that way um so i looked at god and i said god you made this tree you are in this tree so when i see this tree i see you and he said yes that's right and 
Then I started thinking about my parents and I said the same thing. God, you made my parents. You are in my parents. So when I see my parents, I see you. And he said, yes, that's right. Well, I said the same thing about my children. And then I got kind of sad because there have been people in my life who said the really horrible things that hurt me very deeply. And I, I started thinking about that person, well, those people. And I said to God, I said, God, there are people in this world who hurt other people on purpose. Um, you know, they, they just hurt people, but yet you made these people, you are in these people. So when I see these people, I see you. And he said, yes, that's right. He said, now I have a question for you. And I was like, oh my Lord, <laughs> I didn't know what to, yeah, I thought, oh my, I'm not going to do well. Um, but he said, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? And I didn't know what to say back at first because my first answer would have been nothing. Because my whole life, I've been told you're fat, you're ugly, you're stupid, um, you're this, you're that, whatever. And so I didn't, I didn't know what to say. I mean, that's not something you tell God. And so I said, well, you made me, you're in me. So when I look in the mirror, I see you. And he said, yeah, that's right. And he was so happy. His eyes were sparkly and he was smiling, this gorgeous smile. And he just, you know, and I felt like a little girl who just passed test you know I was I was happy that he was happy but what he was basically um telling me was I don't make mistakes I don't make junk and you are not all of the things that those people in this world are telling you that you are you are not what the world makes you to be you are what I make you to be and I love you and that you know that that's what he was telling me and so that was huge for me um that that you know we do take on the junk of the world and we do believe what the world teaches and we don't hear what he's saying and um then after after that happened there were two angels that came and got me and they took me to this lake and it was like it was so beautiful that it was like looking in to glass. It was so calm. And so I lean over and I look into the water and I can see the earth below. And what I'm seeing was like a, it, it was like it was right up here in my face. And I could see all these things happening. And so this was like back in 2005. And so what I was seeing is stuff that's happening now. So I saw future events and, um, you know, the collapse of money, um, uh, the terrorist stuff I saw. Um, I saw um, just, just uh, lots of things. But what the angels told, I didn't know what to do with it when I saw it all. And the angels were saying that these things don't have to happen. It's up to you all, you know, your collective human 
selfishness is what is causing these things to happen. And you can change this if the, these things don't have to happen. But they have happened. At least what I've seen so far has happened. So they're saying there's time to change, but we have to make that change. And then um, I was sent back to my body. And I'm, <laughs> um, if I was had a discussion, a conversation about whether to come back or not, it was probably not a good one. And that's why I can't remember. <laughs> But um, um, I do have um, a right bundle branch block in my heart from the lightning and seizure disorder. So, um, but that's, that's my second near-death experience. Wow, that was woman struck by lightning, died, and shown future of the world financial crisis in her NDE diary. My name is Deborah King. I am the mother of uh, four wonderful children. I've spent all of my professional life as a registered nurse. I was raised as a Catholic and always believed in an afterlife, had faith in the immortality of the soul. I had then two experiences that I think were very pivotal in my own spiritual development. The first one of those experiences was I was in a horrific car accident right before I started college. I had a day off from school. It was January 1972. I was a passenger in my father's car. And the last thing I remember is sitting at a red light, waiting for the light to turn. And that was it. The very next thing I remember is really being out of my body and looking down on what looked like a horrific accident scene. And I was trying to make sense of this and pretty quickly I noticed my body. I recognized myself. I was in this twisted clump of metal. The, the door next to the passenger side where I was sitting had pretty much been almost flattened to the ground. Uh, I was thrown almost fully into the back seat. Of course, there were no airbags at that time. We didn't even really have passive restraint systems. And uh, my father, miraculously, he had minor injuries, but he was able to get himself out of the car. And I was watching him, and he was frantically running around the car, kind of holding his head and really panicking, looking at me, trying to wake me up. But I really looked at my body and felt no fear or concern about my body. My concern was mostly for my father at that point. I wanted to do something to tell him I was okay, I was, I was fine, and not to worry about me. He was trying to get me out of the car. Of course, he couldn't. I felt both a tremendous sense of peace wherever I was, which I didn't really understand, but also a sense of compassion for my father at that point. And right about the time that I started seeing 
rescue people and police come. Just like that, I was back in my body. I remember opening my eyes and feeling glass on my face and I was aware that I was bleeding. I had multiple injuries. I was in a lot of pain. Then I heard my father's voice saying, you know, thank God, thank God, Debbie, you're going to be okay. So that was a very quick out-of-body experience. I now know that was that. I didn't know it at the time. Didn't even know what those experiences were. But I told nobody about it at all. I didn't even tell my own mother. I just knew that it, it did happen. And it was very, very clear to me. But I was getting ready to start nursing school in a very strong nursing program and certainly didn't want to be seen as crazy in any way. So I kind of just kept that experience to myself. And so I completed my nursing program at Hunter Bellevue and I came to Maryland to work as an intensive care unit nurse at Johns Hopkins. And I was working in the medical intensive care unit. By this time, this was about 1977. At the end of one very long and exhausting evening shift, we had a, a fairly young man. I would say he was in his 40s. He was in shock. He was not doing well. And we were trying to determine how he got his injuries. But in the process of trying to do the workup, he had a very sudden cardiac arrest. We really weren't prepared for it. We didn't expect it. I remember the team went into full resuscitation mode. We were giving groups of resuscitation drugs, oxygen. We intubated him, everything to save his life. And we worked on this man for quite a long period of time and things were just not looking good at all. We were not able to get a rhythm back for any really length of time. And I was watching the sense of discouragement on the faces of the team members. And the chief resident looked at me and he said, you know, Deb, I, I don't think we're getting anywhere and we have to kind of call for the time of death and just really let go. But when he said that, a feeling came over me. The only way I can describe it is an intuitive kind of knowing that we needed to keep going and that our efforts would be rewarded, that somehow just keep going, you're going to get him back. And so I, I looked at the chief resident and I said to him, why don't we go one more round? He looked at me and he said, okay, Deb, we'll go one more round. And so we did. And we gave another round of resuscitation drugs, another round of defibrillations, everything that we could do. And after that, we got a rhythm back. And, you know, I remember applause breaking out in the resuscitation room. We were shocked, actually. We were all so happy and we considered the resuscitation a success. And I was so relieved and happy in that moment that I had followed this intuitive voice, whatever it was. But we were concerned because he wasn't waking up. And so we kind of adopted a wait and see attitude and decided to just support him with a ventilator and as many medications as we could in the hope that he would regain consciousness. I wasn't on duty the next day. 
was about two days. I returned back to the ICU and the patient had woken up. Sometime in my absence, the days I was off, I just was so thrilled for him. Walked into the patient's room and the second he saw me, before I had a chance to say anything, he leaned forward in the bed and kind of pulled his oxygen mask away from his face and said, it's you, you're the one. And I froze for a minute, what did I do? And he said, they were working on me. I was watching the entire resuscitation from right up there. And he pointed to the corner of the ICU room. He said, I, I was up there, I was watching the whole thing. I, I saw everything. I saw the lead resident with blood on his shirt and you were conversing with him which is actually true. He was covered in blood. He had just come from a trauma resuscitation in the emergency room. And he told me details of the resuscitation that there was no way anybody with a flat line on their EKG monitor could have known. He even told me actually how my hair was kind of falling down. I had very long hair in the seventies and it was the end of the shift. My hair was falling down. He told me we were having trouble with his endotracheal tube, which was true. We were actually having trouble ventilating him and we had to call anesthesia. He described, you know, you had to call a tall man who had glasses and had a, a blue hat on and uh, blue scrubs, which really was the anesthesiologist that had come to our assistant to try to replace his endotracheal tube and other important details of his resuscitation. I was thinking how could this person who was in a complete cardiac arrest know these things? How could he tell me these things? I was just frozen. And then he said, but it was you, and I heard you clearly say to the guy in the blue scrubs with the blood on his shirt, when he said, let's stop, let's just call it. He wanted to give up on me. And you said, let's go one more round. I remember getting the chills. This is not terminology that, that an ICU patient would know. This is how we referred to rounds of resuscitation, drugs and interventions. And he said, you know, in my day, when people said, let's go one more round, it was usually the last call at the bar. And I remember just freezing in place. And he said, thank you. Thank you, nurse, for saying that. I almost lost my voice and I remember thinking to myself, I have no idea how this happened. I just know that there's no way this patient could have known these details unless he did exactly what he said. And I remember a striking knowing inside me at that moment saying to myself, this changes everything. But I really told nobody. Again, this was in the 70s. Here I am at Hopkins in the mecca of medicine and science. I'm certainly not about to tell any of my colleagues what, what happened with this patient. And I continued through my professional life at that point, both in nursing and then having completed a doctoral degree in clinical psychology. I was working at that point as a therapist in private practice. But this experience acted kind of like a magnet in my professional life. 
it seemed like the more I thought about it, the more patients would tell me about their experiences. And when I transitioned out of critical care after many years into home care and hospice, that accelerated even more. Patients started telling me more about experiences around the time of death, anticipating their death, seeing loved ones who were visiting, coming to visit them. Sometimes they would look at me and they'd say, you know, Debbie, you don't think I'm crazy, do you? And I would always say, no, I know that you're not. I shared nothing about my own experiences, but it was beyond an interest at that point. It was a, a pull, a very strong pull in my own life. I was 54 years old. I had just finished my doctoral research. It was a very rigorous program. My father, who lived with us, who I was incredibly close to for my entire life, was dying of pancreatic cancer, and I was trying to come to grips with that. I was also working uh, as a nursing supervisor uh, at a local hospital, and I was just felt like I was pouring from an empty cup. I really was not taking very good care of myself. I felt like something was about to change and went for my annual physical. I remember my primary care physician saying to me, you know, Deb, everything looks normal, but you know, you don't look so great. You need to take better care of yourself. And then shortly after that, the holidays started approaching and I just was heavily grieving the loss of my father. My father had, by that time he had passed, he had passed about six months prior to that in June of that year. I felt lost. I felt like I had really lost my rudder in life. My father was like my lighthouse. I, I didn't really know how to be in the world without my father and I wanted to be near him. And so I, I told my husband I wanted to drive up to his grave site. And it was about a two and a half hour drive. I do remember wanting to get home quickly. I pulled into the driveway, my husband came out and he said, oh, I'm so relieved that you're home okay. You look very, very tired, which I was. I don't remember ever feeling so exhausted in my life. And got into the house and I don't remember any of this. This is recalled by my husband. He said, I kind of robotically put down my purse and hung up my coat and started walking upstairs. He also told me afterwards that something very intuitive came over him and he kind of really got an intuitive sense that I, I somehow was just not all right. He really insisted on staying there. He just was following his intuition. And so I got ready for bed and decided to kind of read for a while, sitting up in bed and he described that as I was reading my book, I started to sit bolt upright all of a sudden in the bed, put my hands up to my head and said, oh my God, Bob, I am so dizzy. I'm just so incredibly dizzy. With that, I instantly kind of fell over, slumped over the book and I was not breathing. He checked for a pulse. I had no pulse and I actually had taught him CPR using a video from the American Heart Association because my father who lived with us 
had a cardiac history. And so he quickly went into actions, began CPR at the same time, called 911 and continued CPR until the rescue squad arrived. I was without a pulse at that point for at least 10 minutes. It was a witness to rest, which was a very good thing, but it was probably 10 or 15 minutes before the rescue squad arrived and started providing expert resuscitation and advanced life support. Of course, my husband was watching this and it was going on and on and they were giving me defibrillations, you know, shocking me multiple times. They were not able to get me back. He kept thinking to himself, you know, they're gonna stop, this, this isn't working. I'm losing her. But somewhere around the sixth or seventh shock, maybe more, I'm not really sure, they got a pulse back. There were IVs running, they put me on a stretcher and told him that they were gonna immediately transport me to the emergency room. Can I return this love-hate relationship with cookies? Start today at www.com. I had arrested several more times or lost a viable rhythm in the ambulance. When I arrived at the hospital, more of the same was happening. And after a long period of time, the physician came out and spoke to my husband and he said, look, things are just not going well for your wife. I, I don't think she's gonna survive this. And if she does, I'm not quite sure she's gonna survive it with neurological function intact. And at that point, he was able to see me in one of the ER bays. And I started having something called the cerebrate posturing, which is something I had seen many times as a critical care nurse. And it's, it's an abnormal body posture that the body goes into when there is really severe and often irreversible brain damage. And after some time, two physicians came out and said, we got her back. We've seen this posturing. This is often really not a good prognostic sign for somebody to have neurological function return after a cardiac arrest, especially one that happened at home. But there is one thing that we can try. It's a fairly new protocol and it's called therapeutic hypothermia. And what we all do is lower your wife's body temperature to try to protect her neurological system from damage. We really don't know if it's going to work, but we don't think we have anything to lose. And my husband agreed. He thought, well, you know, if things are looking that bad, do it. Go ahead, try it. And with that, they began. I was brought up to the intensive care unit, unconscious, and remained in a coma. And so my NDE experience began in the middle of my cardiac arrest, my resuscitation, coma. I really can't tell you when it began. I can just tell you that the first thing I remember was being in what I would call a black void. I say void because I really didn't see any boundaries, but yet somehow I sensed that this was kind of a holding place. I, I knew quickly that I was out of my body and I wasn't afraid at all, actually. There was no fear. 
it was almost like a very soothing, soft kind of velvety blackness is the only way I can describe it. It was comforting. And I kind of knew that I would not be here for long. And, and I thought, well, where am I anyway? And then the thought occurred to me that I was probably dead. And what do all good nurses do when there's something they want to investigate you to an assessment? And so I actually quickly did the body check. I kind of felt for my arms and my legs and my body and my head. And I was like, okay, no arms, no legs, check, no head. You're definitely out of your body. And I remember being totally fascinated by that, thinking, okay, you really have died. I don't know how this happened. And I really didn't care, actually. I was feeling pretty great. And I, I still felt like myself out of my body. I was just pure awareness. I was slightly aware at that point that there was sort of a light body is the only way I just could describe it, that there was some light coming from me, although it wasn't very prominent at that point. And when I felt that anticipation of what's next, as soon as that thought occurred to me, I felt my consciousness being propelled out of that black void into what I would only describe as an amazingly beautiful night sky with bright lights and beautiful stars, colors I had never seen, vivid rays of light, and what appeared to be almost a very intricately woven spider web of light. It's the only way I can describe it. The stars, it was almost like I was looking at constellations. And I was a bit of a science nerd, so part of me at that point was kind of looking to see if I could actually recognize constellations, and I didn't. They were completely different formations, but none of them seemed haphazard. They all seemed purposeful, and it was just so beautiful, almost as if you were looking through the most powerful telescope you could ever look through. I remember feeling that I was just suspended in this web, and somehow also I was aware that I was part of it, which was really interesting. I was felt separate at first and then very quickly felt that not only was I a part of this web of light and purpose, but I was an important part of that web. And this kind of blew me away. I was amazed. I was like, wow, I'm part of this. I really, couldn't make sense of it, but I was okay with not understanding how I got there, what this was. I just really allowed myself to kind of feel suspended in that and to just be. There was no place for me to go, no place I wanted to be. I had no sense of my past or my future. In fact, there was no sense of time whatsoever. Everything was happening in the now and all at once, which was a little bit mind boggling, but I just loved it. And I became very aware that my five senses really did not apply to this place. I say I was seeing these lights and this matrix and web, 
but I really wasn't seeing it with my eyes. In fact, at some point, the lights were so bright and beautiful that I remember saying to myself, you know, don't look directly at them because they're so bright, they'll hurt your eyes. And when that thought occurred, something pulled me actually to look directly at them. And I did. It's almost like I was able to join with them. It's hard to kind of find the words, but I looked at them and I kind of looked through them and I got the sense that they were also looking through me into almost the deepest part of me. And I could kind of also see and take in information that was kind of 360 degrees, not in a linear way that we do in the, in the physical world. And I also felt and heard these harmonic vibrations. I would say it was like the most beautiful choir I certainly had ever heard, but not human voices just incredibly beautiful harmonic sounds and also dissonant sounds, but somehow they all worked together in an amazing, purposeful and beautiful way. And I just was reveling and soaking in the, the magnificence of this place and the awareness that I was somehow part of it. And at that moment, of surrendering that desire to figure it out and understand it, I started to feel that I was moving at a pretty high rate of speed through this light matrix and became aware very quickly that these light energies were all souls. Some of them I recognized, some I didn't, but I still felt I knew them. I knew I had been there before. And I knew that every orb of light was unique, but yet there is absolutely no separation. They are connected to each other in a way that is just magnificent and I'm connected to them. And so I continued moving, felt no fear at all about, well, I'm moving through this light matrix, I'm going pretty quickly and just really was loving it and was shown in almost kind of the way I can describe it was in front of the lights, there were very rapid images of different events from the life of those souls from the physical and earthly life. I, I had seen some of my own in what I might call a life review, but actually the focus was not really on my own, interestingly enough. The focus was on these frames, it's the only way I can describe them, of experience that were connected to the souls. But I kept thinking, oh, it's going too fast, I can't really see. It was almost like I was watching a PowerPoint slideshow that was just going too quickly and you want to tell the speaker, hey, slow down, I want to take notes. But I received the message that it really was not about the events. The important message was to watch how those events affected the souls. And I started focusing on the orbs of light and the souls. And the message was given to me that nothing could harm the souls. 
no matter what these events were, that the soul remained immortal and intact. And I was shown a lot of things. I mean, births, deaths, and some pretty frightening images, conflict, war, people who had been traumatized in different ways. And again, I focused on watching the light and I was told repeatedly, you see, none of these things can affect the soul. This is who you are. And nothing that's happened to you in your own life can really affect this, except for one thing. I thought, well, what is that? What is that one thing? And then I was shown slower images of events from both my life and from the life of the other orbs in the matrix. And the commonality of these events were all events where people had shown love or tremendous compassion to people who were suffering. They had helped somebody, uh, smiled at somebody in a, in a grocery store, simple events, or helped somebody through a tremendous illness or shown compassion. And when those events were shown to me and they were very clear that they were events of love and compassion, the lights became intensely brighter. Their vibration became quicker. It's the only way I can describe it. It was kind of a vibration of energy and light that became so intensely bright. And the message that I received was, you see, this is who we are. This is who we were created to be. We are loving beings. Love and compassion is what makes us. This is where we came from. This is where we're going to return to. And this is really all that matters. This is really all that can impact the soul. And I remember just taking that message in and just feeling just so so warmed and overwhelmed with that amount of love that I was witnessing and feeling. And I can only describe it as an unearthly love. It was nothing like any love I had experienced. The closest I can describe it really, and it doesn't even come close, was really remembering when my, my first child was born and holding him and just locking eyes with him, feeling a love overtake me that I really had never felt for any anybody before and knowing that we would be connected forever on a on a spiritual level. That that's the closest I can come, but it really doesn't even describe it. And it was just so wonderful. I thought, well you know what? I really never ever want to leave this place. I want to be here, I'm home. I know that this is where I came from and now I'm back here and there's nothing that's ever going to get me to leave here. And when that thought occurred to me, I began moving again. And I kind of sensed that I was moving away from the larger matrix and I became aware of two light energies. As they came closer to me, I recognized instantly who they were. And when I say that, of course, they weren't in their physical form in a human body 
course, neither was I at that point, but I recognized them by their energy. And the first one that started communicating with me, you know, there was no speech, it was all telepathic. I recognized instantly as my ICU patient that had had the out-of-body experience and had returned to his body and told me about his resuscitation and I was surprised but I was so overjoyed to see him and I was like wow it's really you he was like well yes of course it's me I, I wouldn't be anywhere else I I'm here to to give you a message there really aren't any accidents in life when we had that experience, when you were a young nurse, that was not an accident. One of the important missions of your life is you really need to share that. You kind of kept that experience to yourself. You didn't share it with anybody, but now you have to do that. You know, now is the time that can help a lot of people. And I was very, very happy to hear that from him. All of a sudden it made sense. Uh, didn't make any sense back in the 70s, but at this moment in this place, it made total sense to me. I was like, wow, I'll take that assignment. Yeah, I'll do it. That's who I am. But really, pretty quickly, I also realized that if I did accept that assignment, that he was telling me I, I had to go back. I had to go back to Earth and I had to go back into my body. And I did not like this awareness at all. And I shared it with him and I said, well, it sounds very worthy, but really kind of like, can't you give that job to somebody else? Let me kind of just pass that on. And he said, well, no, actually you've already agreed to go back. And I was, no, not me. Uh, I, I don't know where you got that one from, but I, I certainly didn't agree. And he said, well, no, you actually agreed to go back before you even came here. And this really confused me. I really couldn't make any, any sense of this. And I thought, well, I'm not sure where he's getting his information from, but I didn't agree to this. And he said, it's okay. It's okay. You agreed to it. You have a choice, but you've already made that choice. And as he said that to me, his light started fading and I was aware that, that he started moving away and that the second light that had come into my space, who I recognized instantly as my father, was now going to speak with me. And I just was so overjoyed to see my father. I, I just really cannot even put it into words. And I was like, dad, oh my God, it's you. And he was like, well, of course it's me. Where else would I be? And I was just, just so overwhelmed. And I would say, I, I felt like I was crying, although I don't think I was because I didn't have a body, but I was, I was just so thankful to be with him. And I said, oh, now I don't ever want to leave. I want to stay here with you. I just don't ever want to be separated from you again. I was so close to my father in life that now that I had been re reunited with him in this wonderful place of love and light, I didn't want to leave him. He said, well, well, don't be silly. We can never really be separated. We never really were separated. 
I left my body and I died, but I never really left you. I've been with you this whole time and I'm with you now. And once you go back, I will be with you. I'll never leave you. You can never really leave this place. It's a part of you. Don't be afraid to go back and do this work because you're never going to be alone. We will always be with you and I will always be with you. In truth, this place and these, the souls and the divine has always been with you. It's been a part of you. And I somehow accepted this. I trusted that even if I didn't understand it, if my father told me this, that he would not, he would not steer me wrong. And I accepted this and I said, okay, dad, if, if we're not going to be separated, okay, I'll, I'll go back. And I felt myself really being pulled away from that place. And pretty quickly, I was hovering over the ICU bed and I saw my body. Well, gee, this really doesn't look good. I saw that I was hooked up to a, a respirator. I had multiple IV lines in, cardiac monitors. I recognized the unit. I had worked there as a nurse and I knew what those pieces of equipment meant. I also noticed two details. I noticed that my eyes were gently taped closed, which usually happens in patients who are comatose to avoid corneal injury. And I also noticed, I couldn't really see if I was restrained, but there were restraints on my wrist. I couldn't really see if they were tied. But I, for a minute, got very excited because when I saw this, I thought, wow, they don't expect me to recover because I've been in a coma. That's my body. And the only time those things happen is when they don't want the patient to wake up abruptly and pull out their breathing tube or their IV lines. And so I don't have to go back in there. I was really kind of relieved. I looked at my body again and I looked at the nurses and the doctors uh, that were around the ICU and I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to fit this expanded sense of self in that body anyway. That's not going to work. There's just no way I'm getting into that, into that little body. But as soon as I kind of had that moment of sarcasm, like that's not happening, then I was in my body. I would say it felt like a, almost like a suction. And I all of a sudden felt a sense of not being able to breathe, feeling very, very confined, but somehow regained consciousness. And the next thing that I saw was my endotracheal tube, my breathing tube, kind of sitting on my chest, kind of on my abdomen. And I thought, uh-oh, you pulled out your breathing tube and the alarms were going off. Nurses and physicians were running towards the bed. And are you okay? Can you breathe? And I couldn't speak. And I was thinking to myself, why are you looking at me like you saw a ghost? Why are you so shocked? I'm fine. And they were asking me all kinds of questions. Can you breathe? You know, what's your name? Where are you? Typical orientation questions. But in my consciousness, I was still back there. I was still in a spirit body. I really, I knew I was back in my physical body, but I felt 
the empowerment and the expansiveness that I felt when I was out of my body. And I felt fine. I wasn't fine, but I felt that. And I just couldn't speak, wouldn't answer them. They were getting more and more distraught. The intensivist stepped forward, the critical care physician, and he said, finally, he was just so exasperated. And he said, Deborah, just, just say something. And I thought, well, you know, if I don't try to say something, they're just going to keep bothering me. And so, you know, my throat was very sore. I, it's very hard to even get the words out. But I heard coming out of my mouth, well, I've had better days. And he kind of jumped back, almost in shock, and turned to the nurse and he said, you know, I think she's going to be okay. I thought to myself, well, of course I'm going to be okay. Everything's okay. I didn't at all feel like I had imagined where I was or hallucinated. It was very real to me in that moment. In fact, it was much realer than where I was. I knew from my what I could remember of my experience that this was not good. <laughs> I, I certainly had undergone something that was terrible. But I really didn't feel that the, the majority of me was back in my body, even though I knew it. I, I still felt more in spirit and was still wanting on some level to find that kind of magic wand that I could wave to go back there. And so I didn't doubt it at all for one minute. It was too real. The only way I can describe it is kind of like what I was experiencing in that moment, felt like it was in just plain black and white. And the experience I had had out of my body was really in color, Technicolor, IMAX, whatever you want to describe it. And that was real, and this did not seem real, even though I, I knew that this is where I was and, and I had to deal with it. told that what had happened to me was that I had had a cardiac arrest at home and that I had had ventricular fibrillation. My long-term memory kind of kicked in, the part that was working, and I said, well, you know, you, you definitely felt you have it wrong. People do not have ventricular fibrillation at home and live. And if they do, they certainly don't have neurological function. And mine at that point had some challenges, but this did not make sense to me. I said, oh, you got it wrong. I must have had, maybe I had an atrial arrhythmia or another kind of heart rhythm disturbance. And so my recovery was challenging. I had word finding difficulty. I had memory problems. I felt very disoriented. I still felt like my experience was not only real, but I was trying to integrate it somehow with being here and being back in the physical world and it really wasn't working very well. I was trying to pray and meditate and nothing in my own experience uh, as a Catholic or as a nurse or in any of my life experience had prepared me for this. It was kind of like I had one foot there and one foot here and I didn't know how to kind of navigate 
being back in the physical world. But over time, that started to improve. My neurological problems started to get better, and I was able to return to my work as a psychotherapist at that point in private practice. But that set up some real dilemmas for me because at times when I was working with deeply depressed patients or patients who had suicidal thoughts and were saying to me at that point in my life, I can't live in this world anymore. I believe there's an afterlife. There's a peaceful place waiting for me. I think I should just end my life. And this just set up such a dilemma for me. Of course, all my training had rightfully prepared me to preserve life under any circumstances to help people out of depression and out of discouragement. And yet I had come from this amazing place of love and peace and certainly did not want to disclose any of those experiences that wouldn't have been appropriate. But yet there was something that told me, but gee, if I could just tell part of this to people, perhaps somehow they would be helped. But then there was this other voice that said, well, wait a minute, if you share this with people who are feeling suicidal or depressed, they might say, okay, well, then I definitely am going to act on this. And so it was very, very confusing for me. I, I, I tried to be as authentic as I could, which was the most important thing to me as a therapist. But this is not something I knew what to do with. And so I would refer them to, at this point, the mounting near-death experience literature and some things that I thought would comfort them and then use the tools that I had learned in my doctoral training to help people. Uh, but it became more and more confusing for me. And so I, I gradually decreased my caseload, started working with people who were not as fragile, not as deeply depressed, and gradually left private practice and increased my academic load where I was a professor of nursing and did that almost exclusively. And just made some peace with the fact that it would take me some more time to be able to understand how I could use this experience to help people and to really integrate this into the curricula of healthcare professionals, into nursing curricula, clinical psychologists, social workers, really all people in the helping professions because really we're here to heal body, mind, and spirit. We're holistic beings. And so many healthcare professionals are feeling discouraged and are seeking the support of a spiritual perspective. They're hearing from a lot of their patients about these experiences that they had during their ICU stays and they, they don't have the tools with which to respond to them. What do I say to people who say, okay, well, Deb, your background is in nursing. You've been a nurse your whole life. You know this was oxygen deprivation. This was a hallucination. I understand where that skepticism comes from. I'm trained in science. I'm trained to be the ultimate skeptic. But I think for me, the answer is very simple. 
my patient back in the 70s was in full cardiac arrest. He had no blood pressure, no pulse. There was no perfusion to his brain and therefore accessing what I know of science, he was not able to have a conscious experience. His brain was not working. And in my own experience, I had no pulse, no blood pressure. I was clinically dead for probably over 20 minutes, maybe longer. I had rested at home. It took a while for the resuscitation crew to arrive. Then I had repeated arrests. So it's pretty clear that under those circumstances, no oxygen going to the brain. We were taught, I just remember learning in nursing school, oh, you know, four to six minutes without oxygen to the brain and you know, the brain doesn't function. There's no more brain activity. And even though I think we know now that probably that's not exactly correct, we also know that in the absence of any perfusion to the brain, really one is not capable of having a hallucination because there's no conscious activity. And so before this experience, I believed in an afterlife. I believed my patients, what they were telling me. I had no choice but to believe my ICU patient because what he reported to me was not a hallucination. He reported what the chief resident looked like, the blood on his shirt, where I was standing. There's no way with no pulse or blood pressure, he could have told me those details. So now it's not a belief, it's a knowing. I know that this is true. And I think one of the ways that we can understand this through science is really to kind of shift the paradigm and the understanding that we have about really what the brain is. I certainly was taught in science that the brain generates consciousness, that it is the creator of consciousness, and that when the heart stops and blood perfusion stops and there's no perfusion to the brain, there's no consciousness because the brain is not working. And I think if we step out of that and embrace what I did during my experience, which is the clear awareness that brain does not generate consciousness. The brain is really a receptacle for consciousness, an antenna of sorts that filters our conscious experience. I've read the books by Evan Alexander, who I have tremendous respect for as a, a former neurosurgeon. He can articulate this at a much higher level of sophistication than I have, but this is really where I think the paradigm needs to shift in science so that we understand that consciousness is not anything we create. We are part of it and we will return to it. Since this experience, I know that we are first and foremost spiritual beings and that we have a very temporary physical experience that we are created from spirit. We return to spirit and for a very brief period of time in a physical lifetime, we experience this life to really learn important lessons for the benefit of our soul and primarily to learn how to love unconditionally. I believe 
that probably happens to us more than once. We probably make choices to return to the physical world more than once. And so this is something that I really hold on to and live with every day. I wake up every morning and pinch myself. Even sitting here doing this interview, it's still on some level very unreal to me and, and, and a gift. It's just every moment is precious. My children, my family, my friends have never been as precious to me. And every morning I, I really wake up, um, no matter what the challenges in my life are, with the knowing that, okay, I've been given another day of life. I've got to do my best work. I've got to be my best person. I've got to try to improve. I've got to work with, through my challenges. This is why I came back. This is why I'm here. And I believe that we are having a spiritual awakening, that this is happening, that science and spirituality, once seen really as different approaches to life that really could not be integrated, I really believe we're at a, a very exciting and important place of integrating both of those, which has tremendous implications for healthcare professionals and for healers. After all, I mean, I'm here because of science. You know, Western medicine at its finest saved my life, but intuition also played an extremely important role. And so, I think I'm a living example of the best combination of both science and spirituality. And I believe that is now really what my, my life's work is about. It's about bringing that message to healthcare professionals. There's so much wonderful work about near-death experiences. And that term didn't even exist when I had the experience in the 70s. But you know, the pioneering work and ongoing work of Dr. Raymond Moody, the work of Dr. Bruce Grayson, and so many others like him. We have the International Association of Near-Death Studies, which produces some, such incredible work for the public to access this. The Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. We really have so much now to work with. None of this is accidental this is happening for a reason and i believe it's it's really to help humanity and there is a lot of despair in our world a lot of darkness tremendous mental health crisis if we were not careful as a matrix of light beings if you will and we're not aware of our ultimate responsibility which is to have tremendous compassion and love for everybody and everything that we share this planet with, including the planet itself, that we run the, the very real risk of, of just really being overrun by that darkness. And there is light. That is the message. There is always light. We are never separated from it. It reminds me of the words of St. Francis of a CC who said, all of the darkness in the universe cannot extinguish the light of one single candle. I love those words because we do have a lot of darkness in our world right now. 
but not only can we all bring light, but we all need to bring light. This is what we need to do, the light of love and compassion. And I believe that that, that will penetrate the darkness that we are living in and living through.